Hello ladies and gents and welcome back to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host Roman Tegal and welcome back to the show. And today's guest is absolutely fabulous. He is a gentleman called Sean Singh, who is a CEO and director at Vistagen Therapeutics. This is up there as one of my favorite episodes that I've done in recent times. Um, just to give you some insight, when we were doing the kind of background research uh, on Sean and kind of his career, I had to like double check myself because of the the extent of experience that he's had in uh, in different parts of the industry, both on the vendor side, on the biotech side, and the consulting side. I was thinking, is this guy like two hundred years old? He's not, um, but he is uh, crazy, crazy experienced, and he shares a lot of those insights. Um, just to give you some background, uh, he is an experienced uh, public company CEO and director, has over 30 years of experience working with private, public, biotech, med device, pharma and venture capital firms, as well as a profitable CRO serving in numerous senior management roles. He's an attorney and a member of the California State Bar and a Juris Doctor from the University of Maryland, Francis King Carey School of Law. So what can you listen out for to today? Some of the highlights uh, in today's episode uh, to listen out for. Uh, if you were taking any notice of that kind of quick biography there, um, the different perspectives that Sean brings and he's had make this a super interesting interview because he's able to bring all those different perspectives and I suppose the use of empathy when he's going about his uh, daily business. Um, one of the things I was impressed by was just the the public company element and what it's like running a public company. So I asked him about that. So it's interesting as he goes into a bit of detail uh, about what that is like, depending on kind of the season of the capital markets. Um, the company that he leads, Vistagen, has been on quite a journey and he he talks about the kind of ups and downs and the pivots of that biopharma company and ultimately how it's led them down a mission of, of ultimately transforming the treatment landscape for individuals um, who suffer from anxiety, depression and other central nervous system disorders. I suspect you and all of our listeners know someone in our lives that, uh, you know, that suffer from that and Sean gives some context to how that's very much been magnified um, during uh, the pandemic and especially across younger people and just why uh, a radically kind of transforma uh, transformative solution is needed and that's exactly what Vistagen is focusing on and he again talks about his mission at the company and some of the unique technologies that they're developing to bring something quite uh, well very unique to the market. We then as you expect delve into um, how uh, as a as a biopharma company they think about partnerships and collaborations and he's very open on his views of CROs versus CDMOs uh, so listen out for that and uh, I love how he calls it the vendor universe uh, and he gives an insight into what the kind of most critical asset is from his perspective is uh, as a boss in this space and um, he also covers some of the partnerships that they think about is they're going through the uh, kind of drug life cycle um, it's a really excellent insight into someone that's had different chapters uh, of their career and some of the challenges and successes uh, that he has had uh, along the way. Um, I really do think you'll enjoy this episode. Thank you to you for listening and my team as always for helping me pull the podcast together and bring it safely to your ears. If you haven't already, please listen. Um, sorry, well, you can listen to other episodes, but we'd love you to give us a rating on the App Store and share this episode or all of our episodes with colleagues and industry colleagues alike. Um, and beyond that, please enjoy today's show and apologies for my slightly croaky voice. Uh, it's uh, a bit a bit of allergies and hair fever mixed with a cold, quite the potent combination. All right, have fun. Hey, Sean, welcome to Molecule to Market. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. And I'm really excited to tell your story to the world. You've got 
seriously impressive experience. My researcher that did a bit of background research, I was like, he can't have done all this stuff. And then I went on to LinkedIn to check and it turns out you have done all of this <laughs> stuff. So I'm excited for you to tell your story. So let's let's start and give our listener a bit of a feel, Sean, of, of how you got into the sector and then maybe just guide us through some of the kind of key milestones and career changes that you've had along the way. Uh, in particular, it'd be great to get You've got obviously def- different parts of your journey where you've been on different sides of the fence and it'd be great for you just to talk through some of those and I'm sure we'll dig in a little deeper as we go on. Well, I appreciate that. 30 years uh, on a journey, you can actually travel quite a distance. So <laughs> I started, I really cut my teeth early on uh, in the early 90s as um, a young corporate finance attorney in Silicon Valley working for a global firm called Morrison & Forster and, and during that time had really the privilege to work on uh, a whole number of emerging companies in the biotech space. And there was some of the early innings of the, of the biotech industry. Uh, so as I was drafting prospectuses and doing uh, initial public offerings and the like, it just became a, really a passion to focus on an industry where certainly you can uh, make a good living, but also have many opportunities to really live beyond yourself and work beyond yourself. So I ended up going in-house at one of the companies that I helped go public, a company called Cyclone Pharmaceuticals, and that was really my first jump into the public company sector. was there for several years. That company became very successful, uh, launched products and commercialized them, and I moved then into the venture capital arena and into the contract research arena with a group called Cato Research, now called Lucent, and formed... Uh, with the founders of that contract research group, Cato BioVentures, and ran that venture arm uh, for about nine years. And eventually the the opportunity arose to go in-house with one of the portfolio companies. And Visagen is a company that we had made an investment in. Uh, and I saw the promise of that company and decided to move in-house uh, into, again, back into the public company arena. Along the way was a uh, director of uh, a couple other companies and one of which was public. So had been in and around the, the life science sector now for over 30 years. So uh, Visagen presents a tremendously exciting opportunity. And uh, when you see something like that, you see things that are differentiated compared to whatever else you've seen in your career, uh, it really captures your attention. And that's that's the, the story that got me to Vistagen. We're going to come back to Vistagen and spend quite a little bit of time on a bit about the organization and what you guys do. A couple of kind of follow-up questions to the, I suppose, the the breadth and depth of your experience, Sean. And I have to ask the question, as, as someone that's been a, an entrepreneur and a founder of a few companies and a CEO, running a public company always seems to me like a real pain. Like I could not think of anything worse. But that is my, <laughs> that is my, I suppose, non-informed perception. What is it like running a public company and how has that, how has your journey as a CEO doing that evolved since you first did it? I think it's like just about every other enterprise and you have your ups, your downs, your fits, your starts, uh, sometimes in, in seasons in a company's growth, it's whack-a-mole. Uh, you get one thing done and now you've got to hit another one. Other times, uh, you get on a nice streak. Uh, all of that, obviously, and, and generally, is associated with the nature of your assets, uh, what you're developing, and what purposes those uh, can serve. Capital is always a key piece of the puzzle. Collaborators are key pieces of the puzzle. So it's whatever the admixture is at any given season um, that sort of dictates the ebb and flow of the the activities related to operating a company. It's it definitely has its advantages, uh, certainly associated with access to capital and um, and the like, but it also has its disadvantages because there are regulatory aspects that cost a lot of money. Uh, it costs a lot of money to make public disclosures to the SEC, to have uh, the type of rigor uh, on the accounting side that investors warrant. So um, I'd say overall, in our industry, it's better to be in the public arena by far than not. And that's because of the the uh, long biased nature of many fundamental funds that are focused on the healthcare space. 
we know that there's always going to be a need to develop new and innovative therapies. So uh, the general challenge is it's a long cycle time from when you have an innovation or discovery to the time you actually can get a life-changing medicine to, to patients. And so you need, you need to have those that have a lot of industry expertise uh, and that have the ability to really work together because there's so many cross-functional work streams that are associated with our sector. So I think it's one thing to be public, but it's another thing to be public in the life sciences sector. Uh, so can be a bit challenging. Yeah, it's really insightful. Thank you for, for sharing. And I'm going to come back to access to funds uh, with one kind of, I suppose, eye on the current markets at the minute, a little, little later in our conversation. But one thing that struck me when I was looking at your kind of extensive experience was you seem to have, you know, one of, I think you might be the only person that I've interviewed that has had a real kind of go at lots of different perspectives of life sciences. And what I mean by that is you've worked in pharma, you've worked in biotech, you've, uh, I believe you're an attorney by trade, you've had the management consulting piece, and if I've understood correctly, the VC piece in one of those, and then also the the CRO business, which we'll come on to talk about as well. So did you have a favorite <laughs> in all of those in terms of uh, which, which type of role or which type of uh, perspective that you particularly enjoyed? I'm assuming it's what you do now, uh, but I think just given the extensive experience you've got, it'd be great just to, you can talk a little bit about the different perspectives uh, you've had along the way and probably how they've uh, led you to where you are today. Well, certainly the ability to affect the process is key and the, the ability to impact with colleagues the, the advancement of something is, is tremendously gratifying. And when it is a medicine or a, a portfolio of medicines that are clearly differentiated, that you can absolutely see a clear path to the ability to change people's lives, improve their lives, uh, that's an enormously motivating uh, feeling to be able to come to work every day. And so when you are in a whack-a-mole mode uh, and something you know, pops up after something else was just resolved, that overriding sense of the ability to actually accomplish something as a team and be in a leadership mode with that team to ultimately get to something that can clearly change the lives of people, especially in the anxiety and depression arena. Um, it's very simple to see that. Uh, it's just very motivating and it's energizing. So I say by far the current chapter is the most exciting chapter. I think every other chapter of my career was really helpful in generating the kind of understanding, empathy, if you will, but also the perspective of those that we have to deal with in the ecosystem that allows the carrot beating of a public company and of a public company with life science assets to make significant achievements possible. And I think that's unique. You know, when you go into a meeting and you have a sense of what the other side is looking for, what the other side needs to know what the other side um, has to have you accomplish, that's very helpful. Um, and I think that's given us advantages many times in the past. And uh, whether it's the investor perspective, the legal due diligence perspective, uh, whether or not it's associated with what does a partner need to know uh, to be able to advance something on their agenda, uh, those are the unique perspectives, I think, that if I compile every chapter of, of my career into a book, that uh, that's really the headline is that knowing the other perspectives is important, but mainly it's always about what is it you're driving and what is it, what's the mission of that entity? And here, the, the mission of this entity is, I think, the most exciting mission of any other place I've been in my career, given where the world is today in particular, even pre-COVID. Really in interesting, I have to say that kind of uh, the empathy piece and the the perspectives piece, and I think it's a it's a lesson that can be applied in so many aspects of life. So uh, great to get your take on that. And let's talk about Vistagen. And I believe you joined the company or to run the business back in two thousand and nine. So give us before we kind of get into the specifics of what you guys do, give us a bit of a feel for you know what the company looked like then versus it versus now and also just kind of what attracted you to that role in the first place? Well, as I said, I had some insight into the operations of the company for many years, being on the board while I was in a venture capital role. 
And the company's changed quite substantially. Initially, the focus was on uh, stem cell technology and using that technology in, uh, in a manner to revive older drugs and to assess before drugs even got into humans, whether they were toxic to the heart or to the liver. That business model didn't work. Uh, it just wasn't the right season in the capital markets um, as that was evolving. Politically, that changed a little bit back in 2008. But most importantly, the company moved early on. And, and my hand in this was, if this is a company that wants to really make a substantial difference, we've got to do that with drug-based therapies. And so we licensed in a, a product that we still have, a, a product candidate that we still have in motion called AV101. And then really the, the transformation uh, occurred about five, six years ago when we were able to bring in uh, a new class of drug candidates called Varings, which I suspect we'll get to in a bit. But that changed uh, and brought us in really a, a completely novel uh, platform a technology associated with the nasal spray candidates that we've got into late stage development today. So now we are a company with you know, six different drug candidates in a pipeline uh, that shows tremendous promise across multiple different disorders, but all around the central nervous system and all around neuropsychiatric and neurological um, disorders. And that, that pathway started back in the, the early 2000s and since then, that's been our focus is to stay in that arena. So CNS, central nervous system focused drug candidates and only drug candidates. Not uh, The stem cell technology is, is not uh, a platform that we're advancing in. And you mentioned it wasn't the right season in the capital markets for, for some of the stem cell work you guys were doing a decade or so ago. And obviously the, the focus now on the CNS and you know, particularly you mentioned obviously social anxiety and depression type drugs is, is today and you know, the last five years, is this the right season in the capital market? I suspect the answer is yes for some, lots of macro reasons. Um, but is that, I suppose the nature of where you focus is that of real interest to investors at the minute, at the minute? Well, you brought up a good point that bears mentioned the macro market and the, the state of the world uh, and the politics associated with that um, all come into play, right? There's, the season is often dictated by the, the nature of the ecosystem, what uh, investors are focused on, what pharma is focused on. If you're a biotech company, that's important because collaboration is typically part of uh, the playbook for uh, small to mid-sized biopharmaceutical companies. The the nature of the world. Uh, we certainly had a mental health crisis before the pandemic, and the pandemic has absolutely magnified it uh, without any reservation. So that all matters. But there are definitely uh, therapeutic areas that haven't had much advance for decades, yet the problems associated with those therapeutic areas have increased tremendously. And so sometimes that matters, right? Is there an innovation in the space that has long been neglected, but yet the prevalence of that problem is robust? That brings capital sources, whether it's partnering, whether it's non-dilutive, whether it's equity-based in the capital markets, it just brings attention to those spaces. And so I think for us, yes, the answer is this is the season. There's no question this is the season for the assets that we've got, the stage of development that they are in also matters tremendously to those sources of capital in the markets, as well as partners. Uh, late stage assets typically, of course, have a higher degree of interest across all sectors, but that doesn't mean that early stage assets also aren't valuable and partnerable. So we are clearly, I can speak for the US because that's where I'm based and we're based out in South San Francisco. We've got a sick country right now, and the mental health epidemic in the U.S. involves millions across a broad range of demographics. So, but what's equally clear is that there's a very active and growing need for faster acting treatments, and especially for anxiety and depression disorders. People want to be able to know sooner than later whether they've got an ally in their medication to be able to knock down the symptoms that are either causing them to be self-isolated in the case of social anxiety disorder or 
uh, just really generating opportunity cost and disruption in their lives like with, uh, with depression. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. When I was reading about your com- company, and this might be uh, just me personally, but I was fascinated to see the, the kind of nasal spray, I suppose, dosage form that you are looking to utilize within your pipeline, which is not what I would have assumed if I thought about social anxiety for depression. So is that a common pathway or is that something that's unique to you guys? It's completely unique to us. And it's a, it's a once in a generation type of product candidate, meaning that it's totally differentiated from everything that's used today, approved today, whether on-label or off-label. And that's what the space hasn't seen. We haven't seen anything radically transformative in neuropsychiatry for decades. Social anxiety disorder in particular, there's not been a new um, drug approved for that indication or that disorder for over 20 years. And that's yet the prevalence in the U.S. alone is well over 25 million people affected by this. So it's uh, nearly 10% of this country with the onset in the ages typically between 8 and 17, but a mean duration of this disorder for about 20 years. So social anxiety disorder, just as one example, that's a disorder that is characterized by a profound fear and anxiety of judgment or humiliation or embarrassment in what most of us consider normal, everyday social and performance situations. But for someone struggling with social anxiety disorder, those are challenges. And you know, while today COVID really no longer controls our lives like it did a couple of years ago, we see Americans in particular, and I think all around the, the world as I'm getting feedback from colleagues across the globe, people are re-engaging and in school or at work or in just about every walk of life. So for most people, that's a relief. For those with SAD or social anxiety disorder, in many ways, that re-engagement is is anxiety provoking. It's troubling. It's really the thing that disrupts their lives, especially when the current treatments can't meet them wherever they are in their journey. Uh, And so that's what our team's committed to changing. And these drugs are formulated as a nasal spray only because we're using the nose really as a portal to the parts of the brain that are associated with the behavioral effects of anxiety, of depression. And yet those are the only places in the nasal passages where the receptors, where our drug needs to activate these receptors that then broadcast forward through one interneuron at the called the olfactory bulb neuron that then broadcasts to what we see as really the main fear and anxiety center of the brain, which is called the amygdala, limbic amygdala. These are drugs that don't have to go through your whole body like a pill. They don't need to get broken down by the liver or the kidney and get into the blood and cross over the blood-brain barrier and go where they need to in the brain. Instead, uh, it's really a straight activation of a very short three-inch distance uh, that neurotransmission has to occur to either inhibit anxiety in the amygdala or to generate antidepressant effects, to stimulate the brain. And that's the magic of this this new platform. So it wouldn't work if it was IV, wouldn't work if it was a pill, wouldn't work if it was an injection, because you have to get right on top of the receptors that are in the nose. As a result of that, the doses are tremendously low, microgram levels. Your typical ibuprofen is 200 milligrams. We're at 3.2 micrograms. So a very small amount, put at the right spot, generates the behavioral effects within a very rapid period of time, about 15 minutes. Wow. But without putting you to sleep, without addicting you, uh, without causing the drug to have to go through your whole body and bump into other drugs. So it's really a remarkable technology that is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing and why our team is is together trying to get this job done. It's incredible, and it's uh, it's good for you to bring that to life. I'm glad I asked that question now because I thought you were going to say, 
my fear was you were going to say, yeah, they've been doing this for years. There's loads of products like this on the market making me look really dumb. But I was just shocked when I read it. And I think everything that you've described there in terms of the the, the mechanism, uh, I love the word portal that you used, is, is genuinely fascinating. I'm sure there's a huge amount of excitement, I suppose, from a patient level as well. But I'll come back to that. You mentioned the word partners quite a few times in Lots of our listeners are uh, in the outsourcing space, you know, representing CROs and CMOs and 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 what like and, and the like. So, uh, and obviously, given your CRO experience, I'm guessing you you bring a great perspective. Um, but I'm guessing you, when you were talking about partners before, you were talking about big pharma partners and at what point you look for their support in terms of collaboration. So I suppose what I'm asking you is, could you kind of give us a bit of an insight into at what point do those partnerships become something that you seek to look for in, you know, is it always at a scale up, you know, phase two, phase three, or are you finding that you're seeking out these partnerships earlier on uh, in the process now? You know, partners, an ongoing uh, discipline, and it can occur at any stage in the development cycle. Uh, even preclinical development, but it absolutely can have a fit and a purpose at any point along the development pathway. And so sometimes I think the perception is you just partner things when they're in the late stage. I think there's a lot of precedents that would support that. We're in that mode at this moment with, with our lead asset that there are certain opportunities that can be um, optimized through a collaborative arrangement. And usually when you get to this point, uh, that's a consideration, especially there are entities out there that have commercial capabilities. It's a lot of money to develop a commercial capability after a phase three success. So it could be upwards of three quarters of a billion dollars after your first phase three uh, success to develop that commercial capability. Now, there's a lot of reasons to believe the ROI on that investment makes a ton of sense. Uh, but there's other other cases where partnering and leveraging someone else's commercially as commercial capabilities that's already established, especially if they have a paucity of candidates in their pipeline, but might have one or two uh, commercialized products already. What we're talking about are drug candidates with really blockbuster potential, given the prevalence. So even with a very modest penetration into the number of people whose needs are not met with current therapies, uh, sometimes even less than 10% of that market being penetrated is, is blockbuster level potential, multi-billion dollar revenue potential. So anxiety and depression, of course, those numbers are staggering and they're not going, what we do know uh, is that the rates of anxiety have increased substantially over the past several years overall, even among uh, even mostly and more so among the, the younger population. So that tells you uh, something about what the future looks like. But meanwhile, the ability of mental health resources just haven't kept pace with the prevalence. So there's been no, as I told you, really no treatment innovation in these two massive market segments that have multi-billion dollar impact every year on the productivity of a number of different sectors. I don't think there's a person around who doesn't know someone who's either directly or indirectly affected by anxiety or depression disorders or suicidality, suicidal ideation. And, and that's just tremendously um, frightening. At the same time, if you're developing something that brings new optimism into that space, it's tremendously exciting. So Back to the original question, you know, the partnering, it can occur at any time and it can occur at any phase and there are strategic motivations for those kinds of decisions. And so you're always hoping, you know, one plus one is equaling 10 and, and that's what you're looking for. What's the fit? And if the fit is in phase two, well, then you run with it. If it's phase one, you run with it. If it's phase three, you run with it. Yeah. Uh, and just, it has to be mutually beneficial. Of course, that goes without saying. It's um, genuinely so interesting to get your perspective on that because I think, I definitely think there is a perception that most of these partnerships happen later stage. So I think the kind of openness uh, in the, to think about those earlier on is is quite fascinating. And, you know, when you're talking there and talking about, I suppose, the prevalence of these 
social anxiety, depression disorders. It's not just the US, clearly it's the UK and Europe and Asia and everywhere else in the world. And even as a parent now, I've got three young kids. I think you're so acutely aware of anxiety and depression, signs of mental health in kids than ever before, which I think is what makes this particular kind of focus that you have really, really interesting that it could be something that helps families and kids and parents for many years to come and not just, uh, you know, not just in the in the short term of what you're dealing with right now, as you pointing out the kind of future as well, which I think is is amazing what you, the work you guys are doing. And I'm hoping it obviously comes to market at some point to help people. And I wanted to just uh, zoom out or, or zoom in, depending on your perspective, a partnership. So I mentioned obviously CROs and CDMOs, and there are big listeners, you know, many of our listeners will be working in those organizations. Fascinating to hear your story and, and I suppose get an insight into what it's like to run a business like yours and some of the challenges that you have. How do you guys think about outsourcing and, or, you know, take us into the boardroom of how those decisions are made in terms of what you decide to keep in house and, and, and what you decide to, to outsource elsewhere in the market? You know, that's evolved. I think before the pandemic, I would give you a different answer than I'm giving you now. I think the key, COVID wrangled a lot of what any CEO in any company had to deal with uh, during trying to execute studies during the pandemic. There was just, uh, obviously, we know the impact on the therapeutic areas because of civil and political and economic uh, disruption related to COVID. But it also disrupted uh, staffing. It disrupted sites. It disrupted CROs. your project management often changed. Those you trained up at sites often left and you had to retrain sites. Uh, there were just so many factors that created systemic variability during the pandemic that affected many companies, uh, ours included, in the ability to execute clinical studies and development programs in the way that had developed as normative for the prior, I'd say, all the way back to the mid-80s. And I think that what's emerging, I would say it's an innovative operating model, at least for small and mid-sized companies, where maybe the reliance on the CROs is going to diminish in many aspects, but some certainly will be retained. You know, statistics, the data management, perhaps, there are certain, certain aspects of the clinical trial process that you need to maintain leverage through your vendors. CDMOs, I don't think that changes at all. That remains absolutely perfect leverage point for a lot of more companies than not that they don't bring that capability in-house because there's robust resources for that in an outsourced basis. But in terms of CROs, I think the reliance on CROs to monitor sites in particular uh, and to to really orchestrate the surveillance associated with the day-to-day conduct of the clinical, clinical studies, I think that's going to change. I think companies are going to own that to a far greater degree than in the past. Project management and the requirements that you have leadership in the CROs, it doesn't change. It's never a solution when someone leaves to simply put work on people who remain. And a lot of that actually occurs more than it should. Uh, So I do think companies will, even smaller and mid-sized companies, will start to own more aspects of the clinical trial and clinical development process than in the past. We will see. But I think that there's still always going to be a fit factor. And I think it's just a refit situation now to see as we go forward, what will investors demand in terms of that surveillance capability that the company owns itself versus relying on outsourcing that you have a lot less control over. You can control that on the upfront basis, but you often can't deal with it as well in the middle innings or the later innings of a study. And that just, uh, that has to, that can't be part of the the process going forward. Yeah, I'm sure there's a, a few smiles from CDMO listeners and a few frowns maybe from CROs <laughs> based on some of your, your insight there. But so as you, I suppose, just curiosity more than anything, as you scale up, you know, from say, you know, you've got a, a candidate in, in phase three, I presume that reliance on a CDMO gets even more, not that it wasn't serious in the first place, but the reliance must become 
even more critical in at that phase where you know there's more dollars uh, riding on it you know the milestone you want to reach is you know x time ahead is that a fair assumption or is kind of every milestone created equally when you when you're running these uh, trials the milestones are uh equally important or they, they really wouldn't be milestones but those things that are truly milestones they're prescribed well ahead of time and hitting them has a specific purpose but by the time you get to the point of generating your registration batches from a cmo perspective you really worked out just about everything that you've needed to work out all of the often underappreciated work that has to go into the cmc program early on i mean between intellectual property expense and cmc expense those two underappreciated but very significant and high-end expense categories are just essential um and so yeah the clinicals always get the exposure but the cmc is a is a, obviously a key piece of the puzzle as is making sure you have intellectual property to fortify your commercial exclusivity on the other side getting at the end of that long journey so it, every aspect of that program of those programs especially the IND enabling component up front, the CMC portion and the tox portion before you even get into human studies is very important and doesn't usually get much value at all from investors. So you have to be able to orchestrate that. Sometimes it's non-dilutive sources from NIH and other grants that allows that to happen. Um, we have several programs that have advanced as a basis of that type of support early on. And then of course, you know, clinical development is funded in multiple different ways. So it's interesting, you know, I many years ago worked with a, a company that was a, a specialist in exactly that, the kind of IPCMC piece, uh, a lot of analytical work at, very, at, the, at the early stages uh, of drug development, supporting clients, and they actually talked about how critical it was to get that right up front, and it will save you quite a lot of heartache down the line. And it sounds like from a, a customer perspective, that's very much the case. And I just wanted to spend the last kind of five, six minutes focusing actually one of the back on one of the first things that you touched upon sean which was talking about you know, running a, a public company and one of the questions i asked you know in the kind of whack-a-mole nature of, of of doing so to talk us through you know we're recording uh you know mid mid to late april the, in in 2023 what are the capital markets looking like from your perspective now and you know push it we've come off the back of the chaos of covid and 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 you know it's been a tough start, a tough maybe six nine months from a capital perspective. How does that impact you guys? You know, in in a real, real term. The reason I'm asking that, you know, we have many listeners that are either on in similar businesses as yours or supporting them in vendors, and there's nervousness of you know, if you know Sean's business is not getting the funding it requires, then you know that doesn't trickle down into outsourcing, etc. So. Um, would love your perspective on on what you're seeing and and if it's impacting you guys. Well, I mean, first the the outsourcing. Let me go back to that question because I think again, this if I would say it's an innovative operating model. I can only speak for say us at this point. The kinds of things that you do partner with the vendors and the small CROs and the small CROs tend to have a better fit right now than the larger ones. But there's obviously uh, there's labs there's um, yeah, there's ETMFs. There's there's things that you need the um, the vendor universe to be able to support, and there's other things that we think we can handle pretty well internally. Right. So um, we would have our own site manager. We would have our own study monitors. We would have our own data management and our stats people. But there's there's other aspects that have to be really worked through uh, with the CRO, and those things won't go away. I think the unique insight I have having run a CRO for a long period of time helps us to decide where in the buffet we want to have part of the the offering to complement what we're able to and really using CROs and, and CMOs actually as force extenders is the way I look at it. So if we have the internal capability, the question is how can the vendors and in the ecosystem amplify or fortify what we already have some strength on internally. And that's the key way I'd see things going forward and not just sort of say, all right, we'll turn the whole thing over 
whole program over to a CRO because there are some inefficiencies in the process. And I also think there may be a bit of a bias towards much larger, longer programs than you typically have to have in neuropsych. The size of studies in neuropsych and the types of scales that are used to assess the primary efficacy endpoint are, they don't require studies to be as large. And so programs are not always a fit for the uh, performance objectives that the CROs have. But back to the capital markets, it's really going to be a matter of uh, a lot of the macro issues that are outside the control. You control what you can control. And internally, we can control burn. We can control um, the timing of programs. We can control the uh, extent to which we can partner uh, and provide capital from partnering resources to advance programs. So um, it's not the best time. There's no question about that. Uh, there's, I think, a bias towards late stage programs. That certainly helps us. Um, and the type of uh, study that's required before you hit an endpoint or you can flip the cards on a study, that's always important. So investors are always looking for near-term catalysts. The catalyst can be what typically drives value in our space are data and deals. And those two are always looked at by the capital markets. What's the proximity from their money to that particular and potential catalyst? So fortunately, I think we've got several stacked up um, given the, the scope of our pipeline. There are many shots on goal, both developmentally and from a partnering standpoint. But I think it's just a uh, you know, interest rates have been affecting mindsets and it's typically the JP Morgan conference kicks off some interest in the sector. And we know there's a lot of media around uh, innovation. So it's a very binary market, ours, and something that looks like it's on the side of the road left to, to not make it ends up coming back in a minute. And what happens with data and deals? Very often the market doesn't have anywhere near the type of insight that, say, a partner would. A partner isn't going to do a deal on the basis of your stock price. They're going to do a deal on the basis of, of the commercial model at the end of the day and the approvability potential of an asset to achieve that commercial potential. And so that's, that's fortunate um, because stocks move up and down for reasons that are often not related to uh, what's actually the potential or the scientific and, and clinical drivers of a particular drug candidate. At least that's our space. That's fascinating. It really is. And I think you paint a really, I suppose, insightful picture of what it's like to run a company and some of the things that you have to consider as a as a, a company that's getting towards hopefully bringing a product to market one one way or the other. So my final question on that, I'm always, um, I always look at companies like yours that are, you know, have got, a candidate late on and it always strikes me that they that in my mind that you will have people knocking on your door whether it be investors or uh, big pharma companies kind of one of it wanting a piece of the action so i suppose given you know this isn't specific to obviously you obviously can't share anything like that but at what point does a company like yours think about selling an asset to say a big pharma company, like what drives that type of decision where you decide, well, okay, where we've brought it this far and we know that this is our time to hand it over. So I'm not talking about a partnership or collaboration model. I'm talking more that you decide that it's the right time to sell this asset. So I'm just kind of curious because it's something I've always wanted to kind of find out from someone that runs a business like, like yours, how you think about that and that what that looks like in reality. Because for all I know, you're getting offers every single day, <laughs> um, but it, it's interesting to know what goes into making those decisions. You know, on the other side of it first, there, on the other side of, of any particular company are scores of companies with really legions of people with a, a professional objective of a systematic overview of the space they're assigned to. And so it isn't the case really ever that something just pops up out of nowhere onto people's radars. And it's the job of people who are in business development to find assets that complement their business that they're trying to advance. And so the, the same thing is on our side. We always have a, a pretty broad-based radar 
of those types of partners that we think are fits for what we need to get done. That also goes into the CDMO and the CRO universe and goes into legal firms, audit firms. It goes into every type of service. But the so the reality is um, there's always a, a, a an ongoing socializing process uh, that companies do with every player in the ecosystem. And so we see people from industry, we have people in our company from many large pharmaceutical companies. Uh, but at the end of the day, the job is to get the drugs to people who need them. The, and the question for leadership is always, what's the most efficient way for that to happen? And in cases where you have massive markets with, with phenomenal unmet need, uh, the the financial aspect, the fiduciary aspect of generating returns for shareholders and value down the road for shareholders uh, is the overriding objective, and but but that gets to be accomplished in a space like life sciences and, and pharma, where what you are moving forward, and even if there's substantial dilution, the cost of that dilution can be covered by the downstream economic benefits getting the drug candidate to market. There are so many precedents, uh, even for very average drugs. We know with the current antidepressants, for example, that are generic, they've been on the market forever. They all achieved blockbuster status, even though if you were to start using one today for the very first time, you'd have a one in three shot of that working. And you wouldn't even know that for four to six to eight to even 10 weeks uh, after you start taking them. So when you're able to look at, well, how do we advance on something like that? We have a depression candidate that we think can work in days or a week, and that benefit can be sustained for, for months and months. Um, you realize that there's economic potential associated with that asset. Same thing with social anxiety disorder. Our drug works in prior studies. Uh, we've seen it work in 15 minutes. So without any of the side effects, no sexual side effects, no weight gain, none of the things that uh, unfortunately bother people as much as the underlying uh, condition they're trying to arrest. So the again, the, it, there's no mystery um, out there about what we've got and why we think it makes a difference. And it's the same thing for other companies. It's very rare that you get to late stage and you're under the radar. Uh, of those that you think you can partner with. So yeah, that starts, usually it starts when you have proof of concept in human patients. So when you have phase 2A data, uh, the interest level changes in many sectors, not only the capital markets, but the partnering uh, universe changes when you've seen a patient benefit from your drug in a placebo-controlled phase 2 study. Uh, that's the proof of concept that really gets things moving. And from that point on, it's just a matter of, well, do we want to advance this on our own to a potentially higher valuation point, or do we want to partner because the efficiency associated with getting to the end of the line, the submission of an NDA, the launch of the product uh, is improved dramatically, and that the downstream economics, even if we're not commercializing ourselves, are so robust that it makes sense to simply get to the market. You cannot get more time. That's the key. So whatever moves your asset to a commercial reality sooner than later has to be of paramount importance when you're doing your strategic planning. And that's certainly our case. So, uh, and it may not be the same model for every asset. You may uh, commercialize one on your own because there's a market segment that's more approachable. Anxiety is different than depression uh, in terms of the scope of the primary care market, for example, is, is broad. So a lot of variables, but short answer to your question is it's pretty clear when you get past phase 2A yeah. uh, that a lot of folks have attention inbound and, and pushing outbound. Sean, I could probably spend all day asking you questions and picking your brain. You are clearly an incredibly impressive and experienced guy, but you're so articulate in the way that you talk about the business and what you guys do. It's been a, a genuine pleasure to have you as a guest and you know, given the focus of what your business does, I think everyone listening is 
you know, has their fingers crossed whether they're involved in supporting you or not, um, that you can bring uh, some of these drugs to market. Because as, as you said before, every single one of us listening or, you know, on this call right now is aware of someone that's probably, uh, you know, battling a social anxiety or depression uh, kind of challenge. And I think if we can have something that sounds as effective as what you're bringing to the world, and um, that can only be a good thing for, for many people. So thank you for the work that you do and the rest of your team. And, and thank you so much for being a guest on, on the show. Well, it's, it's certainly been my pleasure and you're doing tremendously good work being able to bring these kinds of things and thoughts to life. And as we all know in neuropsychiatry, there's no one size fits all. But uh, as I've talked with the Surgeon General last year and a couple of uh, interactions that we had, there's just a big need. There's a tremendous need, especially among the youth and in the workplace for drugs like Fasodinol, our drug for for social anxiety disorder, and Ituvo, our drug candidate for depression. So we'll do our part, uh, and I hope our peers do their part because, there again, there is no one-size-fits-all. Patients need different things at different points in their journey, and I just hope that our entire sector can continue to advance and bring new treatment solutions to the folks that are really struggling in their daily lives. Uh, can you just imagine what the world would be like if even a million uh, of the 50 million associated with anxiety and depression are now more productive and creative and let alone 5 million or 10 million or 50 million. So we'll yeah. keep at it. We'll do what we can do to, to fight the fight and certainly appreciate any support from our existing and future partners. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again, Sean. Okay. Hi again. Thanks for tuning in to today's show. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. For more shows, have a look on Spotify, Apple, or Amazon, wherever you like to listen. And do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically. And please get in touch via our website, at Molecule to Market Pod or via LinkedIn or Twitter. We love to hear from you. So if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on Molecule to Market, then please let us know. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.